Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey, Steve. Hey, Susie. How are you doing? I'm I'm good, thank you. A little bit dusty this morning, but generally pretty good. A little bit dusty. So we've both had an interesting few weeks. We didn't pod last weekend. Why is that? What are you doing? I've been in the UK. Well, not just in the UK. I've been in UK, Greece and Ireland for the past four weeks, having a fantastic time seeing friends from time gone by and seeing lots of exciting things and seeing James Joyce things and Odysseus things. Been having a great time, but that's that's why I sound a little bit off form. You've not had such a happy time. That's true. You do sound as though you might have had too good a time. A little bit. I think so. We're looking forward to getting home soon anyway. Yeah. So, uh, and resting your weary head, which is coincidentally what I've been doing and why I stand a little bit hoarse. The uh, the plague got me. <laughs> no, no. So you've been in isolation and all of that? Yes. I've served my seven days, room service to the door and occasionally waving at friends and family down the corridor. Watched a lot of TV watched a lot of house did you ever watch house when that was on oh yeah absolutely that was a that was a great show i really used to enjoy i mean hugh laurie is so uh kind of endearing and charming i mean he's a he's a cussed old you know cynic in the show but i think he's so likable himself that that kind of smuggles it in and allows him to get away with it have you watched any house lately <laughs> No. Where are you going with this? Well, I remembered liking it at the time as well, but I found myself looking up to see the date on it to try and figure out how long ago it was because um, apparently it's changed. We watched it first time around and between now and then it's changed and things have changed in what they did. It's very strange because... um, What, just aged? Yeah, I guess it's the... Look, I found it toe curling and I got to... I don't know, the second or third series and had to give up, found it horrifically sleazy to the point where the Dr. House, the Hugh Laurie character, horribly sleazy to all the women. And then there started being children who were having sex. So there was a a 15-year-old who House was just ogling over and talking about how amazing she was and all this sort of thing. And then it came up that she'd been having sex with her father, but that was okay because it was her decision. And then there was a 12-year-old who'd also been having sex, and that was also okay because it was her decision apparently. Ugh. I, I never liked House. I always thought it was a terrible, shocking show. <laughs> Is that, are, you, are you exaggerating to make, make the point? No, no. There really was. Those things really plot lines. So there was a, a 12-year-old where I suppose another thing, I mean, less, less major as well, is that interestingly it was made clearly for when we watched shows, we got one episode a week. So it just wasn't at all well-structured for binge-watching because every single episode was the same. You know, it's so formulaic. But there was one episode where there was a 12-year-old and the plot line was that she was pregnant. And then it went into, oh, well, that's a bit of a problem. Why is a 12-year-old having sex? And the 12-year-old said, no, no, it was my decision. It's all good. I decided to do it. And they went, righty-ho, then let's just deal with this pregnancy issue. Mind-boggling. I mean, how did any of it, how did that get through? How did any of us sit there and watch it at the time and think, Hugh Laurie, he's so enjoyably cranky? Yeah. Let me venture a a, a thought. I mean, I, I haven't seen it, so I'm at that disadvantage. 
because House is one of the main strands of House. Obviously, is the the wounded healer. I mean, he's got a he's got a gammy leg, and and he's terribly dysfunctional himself. And his job is to be brilliant and save the lives of others. I get that. But another major strand of the show is around ethical dilemmas or moral dilemmas. You know, that, that how do you decide what to do when when it's not obvious? And is there is there any possibility that that's what that was about? How do you respond to someone uh, like that? child. This sounds like thin ice to me, but I'm, I'm just trying to rescue House from the, the House of the Damned. There was not a subtext that said that, that I could see that told me that the 12-year-old having sex was a bad thing, except that she had a pregnancy that gave her mysterious medical conditions. So if the question being asked was, how do we respond to this? Then the answer was not a good one because the answer was, okay, we accept that She's made an active decision to have sex, which clearly 12-year-old can't do. And then we we move on. So yeah, I, I found it quite hard watching, actually. And and after a while I stopped. Well, that is disappointing. What does that say? What do we think? I mean, how long ago was House when you looked it, it up? It was not even 20 years ago. Oh, goodness. Which is not that long, does not feel like that long ago in terms of my adult life. And the other the other show that this has happened to me recently, actually, with is Friends. Have you did you watch Friends? Oh no! Also a favourite. <laughs> I, I, I never was actually a very big fan of Friends, but I'd seen episodes from time to time, and it, I thought what it was was a fairly charming, upbeat, high spirited show about beautiful young people living in very expensive apartments and managing on minimum wage, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is It is all of that. But I was trying to watch it with my daughter. I thought, well, let's find a thing that we can both enjoy and we sit there and we have fun. And it was horrific, actually. She just started giving me side eye. I mean, and I said to her, this is a product of its time. And she went, yeah, yeah, fine. And I'm not the first person to say this, actually. I've discovered from Googling. I mean, I was, I was Googling to go, well, am I just imagining this what's what's happening what happened to the show that i used to really enjoy so yeah it's very very white it's very heterosexual and where there is any lgbt content it's for the comedy it's homophobia really in terms of how it deals with any kind of difference it's horribly body shaming so all that stuff about fat monica and again it's sleazy as well i again watched a bit enjoyed the comedy, toe curlingly painful to see these kind of attitudes that we just really don't want to, I don't want to see on, on the screen and, and gave up. And yet to us, at least maybe not to everyone, but to the, to the mainstream, all of that was invisible then. Yeah. I don't remember that. I don't remember it being discussed. I don't remember noticing it in the episodes that I watched. Do you at the time? I remember the fat Monica stuff being pretty bad, but did the other bits really stand out to me in quite the same way? In some ways, this is a good thing, right? It says how far we have moved on. One of the ongoing plot lines is that Chandler's father is trans of some kind. So it's just constantly man in a dress, even he, and how funny that is, haha. And every time Chandler mentions his dad, then there's a laugh because it's always in the context of, yeah, it's just awful, really painful. Did I notice it at the time? I hope I did. Did it offend me in the same way it does now? I don't think it did because I watched the show and I can't watch the show now. Is this a a measure of how far we've come as a society that it sticks out like a sore thumb and we can't take any content that's more than 10 years old because it's icky? Well, I love to watch a lot of old classic movies, your Humphrey Bogarts and your Lauren Bacalls and all of that. 
Cary Grant. And I suppose if you wanted to unpack some of the attitudes that underlie them, you could be appalled. But I honestly don't think there's anything like you've just been described. I'm rather shocked, actually, that it could have been that overt. I'm here in the UK. And one of the things that there's a new TV show, I think, or film coming out very soon about Jimmy Savile. So I've had a conversation or two about Jimmy Savile, who was this awful child molesting man who was hiding in plain sight. And people are kind of asking themselves, how could we have not seen that? How could he have got away with all of this? And I think that that's one of the interesting things to me. I mean, you listen to old pop music, you know, Sweet 16, a lot of songs about waiting for the girl to be old enough. It's always the the man waiting for the woman to be old enough so that they can actually uh, consummate their relationship. And that's that's hard to listen to now, mm. of course. And at the time, it seemed it, we just kind of took it. It was like the air that we breathed, I think. Yeah, for some of us. And then for others, it was the air that we breathed, but we we really knew it was poisoned air at the time. You claiming that you were um, exceptional. <laughs> no, I said we on both sides. <laughs> I said we on both sides of those. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it talks to a couple of things. You're, you're right. And it's a good thing that we have changed and we notice these things more and we see how hurtful things can be, because that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? It's not, this is not just some abstract political thing that, you know, we, we have to be inclusive because inclusion is a, an absolute value now. It's because that hurts people that when we're not, when we make, when we fat shame or when we are making jokes about men in dresses or about, you know, men being effeminate or whatever, that hurts people and people watching at that time. I mean, imagine what a, a trans person watching friends would have felt. They, they would have felt even a refuge, what should have been a safe refuge from what would otherwise be a pretty challenging existence. Even there, they're getting the noses rubbed in it and getting othered and reminded that they are perceived as comic and, and freaks. Yeah. So that's good. The other thing, though, is the fallibility of memory. Now, you and I and um, Helen, my wife, we're big Jane Austen fans. So we went to the Jane Austen house again, uh, and it was great. We saw Colin Firth's shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that he climbed out of the lake in in the TV thing. But they've moved the house. They've relocated it. What? It used to be an open country. As, as Helen and I distinctly remember that it was not near any houses, not at all, that you that you walk down to it and it's like surrounded by Jane Austen-type countryside. Well, apparently it isn't. Hang on. Is this Chawton? <laughs> just the, off a street. The little cottage? Yeah. Is it possible yeah. that just as they haven't refilmed house to make it more sleazy and horrible that they didn't actually move this house? Maybe the landscape changed? <laughs> <laughs> I think, but no. What happened is that we just simply misremembered it. Mm. We, and I think you can see how you can imagine you can project onto Chort and onto Jane Austen certain expectations, you know, a sort of bucolic cottage rather than being almost next to a pub and over the road from a row of houses and a, and a, a road with cars on. I noticed that yesterday I went for a walk here in Bath and I was looking for, a, there's an old bookshop, so that's what I was looking for. And I completely edited out about half a mile there. I thought it was just around the corner from where I'm staying. So I got around the next corner and said, oh, here it is. Oh, apparently it isn't. Walk along there. And I think, again, you can see how you can edit out things that have no significance for you. To me, what was important was leaving the house and getting to the bookshop. So I'd sort of forgotten that there was a fair bit of space in between. And is your whole trip like that in some ways, being back in the UK after a few years? I think so. I Last night, we were out with people that I used to work with 25 years ago, and I found myself telling a story to someone about them. 
And he kind of looked at me wide-eyed because I'd got it wrong in just about every important detail. (laughs) And there were people there who remembered, quite distinctly remembered working with me. And much to my shame, I didn't really remember. I, I don't think I've got a very good memory anyway. I don't think I've got a very good recollection for those sorts of things. But that was, you know, a revelation to me. They do say that about memory, that things like testimonies, you know, you you write down what happened and then when you look at it even 12 months later, your perceptions totally change. Absolutely. There's plenty of evidence. Uh, Elizabeth Loftus is worth looking up. She's a psychologist who's made a special study of the fallibility of memory all her life. And there were examples of exactly what you're saying, people who uh, wrote down what they saw yesterday at 9-11 and signed it, and then they were asked again in a year's time. And their memories had shifted and changed, not in every case, but maybe in about a third of cases had really significantly changed. They were in a different location. Instead of being in the restaurant, watching it on the big TV in the corner, which is how they remembered it a year later, what they'd originally said was they were standing outside looking at the screen through a window. You know, and in some cases, entertainingly, people actually refused to believe that their memory was wrong because it seemed so vivid. They found a way of discounting the original statement. Is this how we end up with uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard and no one can quite remember who pooed in the bed and the, <laughs> the two perspectives on, when you have two perspectives on an event and they're just diametrically opposed. Yeah, not just because by their accounts, they seem to have spent a fair bit of time stoned out of their gird. <laughs> that, that, would, that makes remembering things hard. But also, I, I think we do neaten things up. We smooth out the narrative to suit ourselves. We remember things in a way. I read a really good book about the KLF. I don't suppose you remember the KLF, who burnt a million quid once upon a time. It's a really good book, but it talks there about the surprising way in which the events of the time, when you go back to the primary sources, tell a really different story from what is the kind of the received wisdom, Mm. because the received wisdom has smoothed out the story, given a, a satisfying beginning, middle and end, when actually the original story was much more chaotic than that. My own memory of living in the UK and being in the UK certainly skips a few things around crowded tubes and cost of real estate and all the rest of it. So how do we know what memories are real and what memories are not? Or am I asking the wrong question? Is it more about what memories are important to us or something like that? That's a really good question. For me, I think it's important to understand a little bit about how memory works, because otherwise we're just walking around fooling ourselves. For example, the evidence in court that is given the highest credibility by juries is eyewitness testimony. Mm. And yet, other things being equal, the evidence which is least reliable is eyewitness testimony. So we've got a real mismatch there between what we think is important. I saw it with my own eyes. How can you challenge me on that? That's definitely what happened. And the conviction with which not just other people say that, but we say it ourselves. And yet the ev- all the evidence is that memory doesn't work that way. And neither would you expect. When you think about what memory is for, it's not to record the past. It's to help keep us safe and to influence our future decisions. So it's not interested in the boring bits because why would why would my memory want to remember a half-mile walk between home and a bookshop? What's that for? But if it's informing future decisions, we do want it to be reliable. Otherwise, it's going to suggest to us that we sit and watch Friends with our 14-year-old who is <laughs> old at, 
at the active homophobia. Do we want it to be reliable or do we want it to be useful? We want it to warn us about things in the future. If Friends were on now, it would get it would be the subject of huge rows and would get cancelled immediately with the first instance because that's what we're looking for now. We're very sensitive to all of that. And maybe in another 20 years, maybe our little podcast will sound very peculiar for reasons that you and I can't possibly imagine at the moment. Not that anyone will be listening to it then, but everything that we are saying and doing now is subject to the same forces that we're talking about from 20 years ago. So 20 years, 20 years, which feels both not that long and also forever ago is forever ago in how it's changed for us. Yeah, and you would think that if anything, change is accelerating with the 24-hour news cycle and the amount of commentary and with the growth of social media, that that's actually accelerating those changes. What's good is that it's changing in the direction of becoming more tolerant and less accepting of all the things that we don't like, having sex with 12-year-olds, homophobia and so on. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It isn't becoming more tolerant. We're much more intolerant now than we were 20 years ago. We're intolerant about different things, but it's entirely possible for someone to lose a job and their career and their livelihood because they happen to say something off colour in a in an unguarded moment. Mm, okay, well, I'll, I'll accept that. But intolerance of pedophilia and homophobia is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We want to be careful to be intolerant about the right things. But there's, you know, a bonfire waiting for anyone who dares to even speak about certain things in a way which doesn't absolutely endorse the, the current orthodoxy. Mm. Yeah, you're going to go on about cancel culture again, aren't you? I am. Well, I'm not now because we haven't got we haven't got time, and that's not the subject of this week. <laughs> but I would like to. And I said that, and now you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so less tolerant. Let's make sure we are less tolerant of the correct things. And memory is bung. Memory is bugged. Bung is what I said. Bung. Well, that's a very Australian phrase. That's my post-COVID voice. <laughs> and this is my post-holiday voice. So next week is our last episode for the season. What are we going to do? We've got a couple of ideas, don't we? We have. Someone, one of the two of us, needs to get his finger out and get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's hope you remember to do that. So I'll, <laughs> I'll see you back here in a week's time. Catch you soon. <laughs>